0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. As the U.S. sets its sights on a return to the moon and beyond, we revisit that moment in history 50 years ago when Apollo 11 forever changed the space race.
1: The first thing that uh, Neil did was to collect a a basically sample in case they had to scramble and get back in the spacecraft so they could say they had a piece of the moon.
0: Then from wallpaper to chairs, even ceiling tiles and cigarette stains, a Colorado firm took on the painstaking restoration of the Apollo 11 mission control plus what the future may hold.
2: Everybody that I know, anyway, that's been there would like to be back.
0: One of the last men on the moon on why he thinks it's so important for humans to keep exploring space. Also, Colorado's role in upcoming missions. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Mourner. Colorado is at the forefront of space exploration, like the successor to the space shuttle called the Dream Chaser. It's being built by Sierra Nevada Corporation in Louisville. It'll fly back and forth to the space station. Then there's the Orion spacecraft. Lockheed Martin's handling that one in Littleton. Orion's designed for deep space exploration and a return to the moon. Now that's a mission long in the making. Fifty years ago, this past July, the first person set foot on the moon. That is 2019 Waynes. We're going to reflect on that historic event today and look ahead. Why don't we start with a phone call? Krantz here. Hi, Gene Krantz. I feel like I'm talking to a rock star.
1: You don't have a rock star. I I can't sing, I can't dance, (laughs) and basically I'm too damn old.
0: This is Gene Krantz, a man instrumental in mankind's giant leap to the moon. He's the former fighter pilot who served as flight director for Apollo 11 and later missions. Now, stories about the moon landing 50 years ago are usually about what led up to these words.
3: That's one small step for man. One
0: But we wanted Gene Krantz to focus on what happened in the hours after Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walked on the moon and their 200,000-mile journey home. I asked Krantz what the astronauts did immediately following Neil Armstrong's famous first step onto the lunar surface.
1: The first thing that Neil did was to collect a uh, basically sample in case they had to scramble and get back in the spacecraft so they could say they had a piece of the moon. But basically, the initial work was done with uh, Neil out. He was testing surface, doing all that kind of stuff, and this was all being relayed to Houston. We could uh, pretty much watch them on TV now.
0: You know, Gene, there's audio from Mission Control that day after the Eagle has landed. Uh, obvious jubilation in the room, and you say something like, "Keep the chatter down." Um, tell us about the atmosphere in Mission Control after the landing, and kind well, of ba- balancing your glee against the fact that there was still a lot more to do.
1: This was one of the things that was uh, very irritating to me. You know, all through our training, we had never had a viewing room full of people that uh, would erupt in cheers and clapping and noise back there uh, when we had landed. And we had double glass walls between the viewing room and mission control. But you could hear the the jubilation. I just had to keep my controllers on track. I got sort of mad. I had a pencil in my hand. I slammed it down to get back on track. I broke the pencil. I said, okay, settle down, you guys. Stand by for T-1. And basically, our job was to babysit that spacecraft and make sure it's uh, safe to stay there for the duration that they're going to be in the moon. We monitored it for two hours before we could give the crew a uh, safer T-3, and they could power down the spacecraft, and we could uh, get on and start joining in the uh, celebration with the rest of the world.
0: Uh, Can you explain T-1, T-3? Yeah, these
1: are times. There were three times once we landed. T-1 was the first time. It occurred two minutes after landing. T-2 was the second time, eight minutes after landing. And T-3 was the final stay-no-stay decision. And these were times when you could lift off from the lunar surface. And basically, the lunar module could perform an active rendezvous with the command module. It didn't require a rescue capability.
0: That is, these were... Uh, moments of escape if you needed to abort or earlier than planned.
1: Uh, yes, that was if we saw a problem when we were on the surface, we could execute a liftoff at these precise times.
0: And how long did they wind up spending on the lunar surface total?
1: Good Lord, I think it was about 24 hours. I don't know the exact time because I knew that once we had finished the EVA, we wanted them to sort of power down, get some chow, and then uh, take a nap. And then we had to go through the... Uh, procedures to launch them off the uh, surface again.
0: Uh, EVA, extra vehicular activity, what you do outside. And they had to have some chow. So uh, there was obviously uh, food with them there on the surface.
1: Oh, yeah, certainly. It's sort of like a uh, quickie lunch, you know, like the uh, military has. Did they sleep
0: on the moon?
1: They were supposed to. I don't really remember. I'm sure they did. They were pretty doggone tired by the time they uh, finished EVA. That's very strenuous. You know, you're working against the suit all the time. The suit, when it's inflated, is in a neutral position where you got to work to move your arms out, you got to work to move your arms in. I uh, tried on some of the uh, shuttle suits, and I found this requires a bit of, uh, what I'd say, coordination, but you adapt to it real quick.
0: Uh, but it requires some rest afterwards. Um, were there risks associated with Armstrong and Aldrin actually walking on the moon? It sounds like you at least planned for the idea that Uh, something might go wrong?
1: Well, there's always a risk of a crew in a suit, you know, outside the spacecraft. The first risk you worry about is uh, something that penetrates a suit and basically allows them to lose in suit pressure and they go to vacuum. But the suits are pretty well designed. They were tested very well. The principal concern I had, uh, not uh, for that EVA, but another one, is occasionally one of them would stumble and they'd jump too high or something because they're in one-sixth gravity. So they have to, instead of walking along, they sort of hop along. And uh, that takes a bit of the learning before you know, they uh, they finally are adept at it.
0: And if you do it wrong, what are the risks?
1: Well, you're going to tend to fall in your face. In fact, we've seen several of them fall, but the risks are are well controlled. I think the greatest risk the crew faces is depletion of the resources in the fuel, which is the oxygen in the, in the suit. Pressurization problems right on down the line. But if they have a problem with that, they just hurry back, get back in the lunar module and repressurize that. and That's
0: all there is to it. Was there a plan if somehow they did run out of resources, fuel, or, or they got stuck on the moon? Well,
1: we didn't talk about that much because we were, uh, we were very comfortable in the design of the lunar module. You know, a lot of people have asked this question what happens if we get stuck in the moon? That would require a series of fares. We had all kinds of workarounds for engine start and all that kind of stuff. The design is very, very simple, and uh, that was not uh, something that we were worried about. But basically, our job is to look over the systems, and we were confident in the technology that was used to build the asset stage.
0: Uh, then there was the challenge. Of reconnecting to the command module because Michael Collins at this time was orbiting the moon. Uh, what had to happen to reconnect them?
1: What they had to do is they had to get off the surface, they have to get into a rendezvous path. Uh, this mission here, everything was going great. It was just the uh, issue of getting properly aligned with the docking target and making the docking and then initiating crew transfer.
0: So once they were returning to Earth, they land in the tropical Pacific Ocean. And did that go as planned? Yeah,
1: it was the only, the only thing that was uh, unusual about the reentry was that there was a storm in the landing area, so we had to basically stretch the glide, basically the, the reentry process. And that was a procedure that we had in our hip pocket. We knew it was going to, we were going to use it. And uh, they executed perfectly.
0: Uh, Neil Armstrong was the first to actually step onto the moon. And uh, I've just watched a documentary, a new one, about his life and how dramatically it changed when he returned to Earth. Uh, Gene Kranz, how much did your life change after Apollo 11?
1: My life didn't change much at all after Apollo 11. This is the job that we're trained to do, and we did it. So basically, I had to make sure that we got back on track and prepared for the Apollo 12 mission. And then after that, was done the Apollo 13, where I was going to be lead flight director again. This was the business that we are in. We we're in the business of continuing the exploration.
0: Of course, Apollo 13 would present all sorts of challenges uh, that you navigated beautifully, as was depicted in the movie Apollo 13. Are you excited at the prospect of a return to the moon as a uh, kind of training ground for Mars. This is what the Trump administration hopes for. Well,
1: I salute and support the president in this moon 2024. I think the real challenge is, uh, I think you can build the spacecraft and get the equipment ready to go. It's really a challenge building the team. And with uh, proper leadership, I think that can execute also. So yes, I am uh, excited. I'm, I would like to see it happen. Maybe I might live enough to see it happen, but at least my kids would see it. And what I'm interested in is the future of this nation and our work in space and how we can contribute to maintaining and continuing to maintain the position on the high ground that we established in the early years.
0: Eventually to Mars, then, you'd hope?
1: Well, I think the moon is the stepping stone to Mars. And I think someday they will move out and decide that's where we want to go. But I think the key thing is we, uh, we this is an incredibly expensive process. And what we have to do is we have to rally the free nations of the world and pull them together and build them as
0: a team. Gene Kranz, I want to leave with this. You were known for vests that you wore to the various missions you led. I understand that your wife made them. Could you describe the vest that you wore for the Apollo 11 mission?
1: Apollo 11 mission vest was, uh, well, I actually wore uh, two of them. Each vest had a white background because that was my team color. Okay. Each one of the vests had a different pattern and different fabric. And uh, I think this was a really, it really turned into be a real morale builder for the team.
0: And this this would be for you and the team? She would make quite a few of these.
1: Oh, yes. And uh, some of them went to Girl Scout Raffles because we got six kids, five girls, so they go to Raffles to raise money. There's one at the Smithsonian. There's another one at the Space Center Houston. The Space Center Houston one is... One of my favorites, because it was a red, white, and blue metallic material, which was very difficult to sew and build. But it was funny one night. They needed one out in Hollywood, and we had to give it insured. And it was appraised at $15,000 a vest. I actually sold one of the remaining vests for our church building fund, and uh, that helped us get uh, that building fund started. So they all went to good
0: causes. Uh, Gene, thanks very much for being with us. And thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Gene Kratz was lead flight director for Apollo 11. It was the first time humans walked on the moon 50 years ago. We spoke in July. It's been 50 years since we put a man on the moon, July 20th, 1969. We're all familiar with the famous radio transmission, of Neil Armstrong saying one small step— but to start this next story, we'll play something else. The communications from here on Earth just prior to that historic moment.
1: Okay, off-flight controllers, go now go for landing. Retro. Go. FIDO. Go. Guidance. Go. Control. Go. Telcom Go. GNC. Good. Go. Ecom. Go. Surgeon. Copy. Go. Capcom, we're go for landing. Eagle, Houston, you're go for landing. Over. Roger, understand. Go for landing.
2: 3,000
1: feet. Capital alarm. 1201. 1201. 1201 alarm.
0: Same type, we're go,
2: flight.
1: Okay, we're go. We're go,
2: same type, we're go.
1: Flight fighter right on, real good, Roger. 2000
2: feet, 2000 feet, into the egg, 47 degrees. Roger.
1: How's our margin looking, Bob? It looks okay, we've got four and a half. Roger.
0: Those commands came from Mission Control at what's now the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. It's probably one of the most famous rooms in history and until recently it just sort of sat there unpreserved people on tours could spin around in the chairs carve their initials into the consoles well it was a colorado company's job to restore mission control make it look like the day of the moon landing down to the wallpaper and ashtrays jennifer keys led this project for ayuda companies it's an environmental engineering firm in denver jennifer welcome to the program
4: hi ryan thanks
0: and you kind of grasped at your heart as you heard that radio transmission. It's still emotional for you.
4: I I still love hearing that. It still strikes a chord, and I think it does for a lot of Americans still.
0: This was a years-long renovation, timed to the 50th anniversary. What kind of shape was Mission Control in when you began?
4: Well, unfortunately, it was very sad. Um, The first time I walked into the room, there was that sort of awe-inspiring feeling, of course, that you know there's this incredible history to that room. And then you start to look closer and you see buttons missing from consoles and yellow tape on the carpet where seams were coming apart or were unlevel and wallpaper peeling Um, stains in different places. It just, it looked pretty sad. There's trash in places even, hidden in desk drawers and and things of the like.
0: This wasn't just a cleaning job, though. It was a detailed restoration, and I find the details fascinating. Tell me about the kinds of details you paid attention to as you made it look like the day of the moon landing.
4: It was truly a a ceiling-to-floor restoration. We Went through painstaking research over the course of the entire project. We, of course, started with the research portion, um, but then continued to unravel things as we went through the process. And one of the things we started with was, of course, the ceiling tiles. Um, When we walked into the room, there were not a lot of original pieces that had been in the room at the time of the moon landing, and. We were able to track down original ceiling tile in an old phone booth in the first floor, in the lobby of the building. And we were able to take it and look at it. Unfortunately, those ceiling tiles aren't made anymore.
0: Okay, I imagine that a lot of what was in that room is not manufactured anymore.
4: <laughs> Oddly enough, that's that's the case and and so we went through the detail of assessing what that pattern looked like. We could get pretty close and then we actually had our contractor drill holes to mimic the pattern. And I know it sounds a little crazy uh, to drill holes in in a ceiling that probably most people wouldn't notice or Uh is kind of far away. But uh, the the historical accuracy was of utmost concern for not only our, our historic preservation officer on site at NASA, but for those flight controllers that worked in that room. You
0: did look at old film footage of the room. That's right. You also interviewed flight controllers uh, what was the experience of watching the film, which I imagine at the time was focused on the people? It's not like the you know the camera operator would have thought to get an image of a coffee mug or a ceiling tile,
4: <clears throat> right? And and so one of the things that was sort of a a challenge is you're right; they were they were focused on the people in the room, what was going on, and the reality is that. We would go frame by frame sometimes just to go back up and say, oh, okay, let's zoom in and see if we can figure this out and figure out what piece of paper were they looking at or what does their coffee mug look like or what kind of cigarettes were they smoking at the time?
0: Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned cigarettes because it's not like in 1969 this room was pristine. NASA staffers smoked like chimneys indoors. It's just sort of what you did back then. So when you thought about the carpet and the wallpaper, did you think it should be yellowed and kind of gross, (laughs) not pristine?
4: I I think what we tried to do is match things as best as we possibly could. To that day. To that day. And um, one of those areas uh, was the carpet. And um, we were fortunate enough that we were able to uncover old historic carpet under the pneumatic tube station so we all call them p-tubes and there are stories of course of people it's much like at the bank where you have a little little canister that you send missives back and forth and they would use that between rooms to communicate with one another and under those p-tube stations um, there was original carpet which was fabulous the the thing we didn't realize i think at the time when we were trying to match the color and the texture was that some of that carpet would have been impacted by nicotine and it turns out that where the the actual p-tube station had rested on the carpet had probably protected it a little bit better than directly under the station and we matched what was directly under the station so what is in the room today is a bit yellowed and matches more of what the nicotine impact would have been Okay, at the time. You,
0: you wanted to reflect
4: that. Yeah, We did, yeah.
0: You also uh, were able to reanimate some of these consoles with new technology, the old technology being expensive and unreliable. And when the restoration was nearly complete, flight director and former fighter pilot Gene Kranz laid his eyes on mission control. Here he is on NPR in June.
1: I walked into that room last Monday for the first time when it was fully operational, and it was uh, dynamite. Basically, I just, <laughs> I won't say literally wept, but it was, there was the emotional surge at that moment was incredible.
0: Seems like you did a good job. The The environmental engineering firm that you work for, IOTA Companies in Denver, which contracts with NASA, yes, is woman-owned. Um, but I think of how male-dominated mission control would have been in 1969, and I wonder if that contrast has occurred to you. Uh,
4: the The detail wasn't lost on me to uh, walk in that room, but I think um, my background is in chemistry. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, our, our president, Sonia Youngberg, her background is, is in engineering, and it's not uncommon for us to be the only woman in the room. Still today. Still today. But while so much is focused on what happened in that room, there were hundreds of other people in other rooms, not only in that building, but other places that also contributed to the the landing of a man on the moon. I
0: think of the story told in Hidden Figures. For yes. Instance, yeah.
4: Yes. And Jim Bridenstine, NASA's administrator, also talks now about being able to put not only the first woman, but also sustaining uh, people on the moon.
0: Thanks for being with us. Thanks you very it. much. Jennifer Keys is with the Denver company that led the restoration of mission control at Johnson Space Center in Texas. Fifty years ago, it served as the earthly nerve center of the moon landing. Now, at the beginning of today's show, I mentioned one of the upcoming missions connected to Colorado. The Orion spacecraft is designed to take people to and from the moon. Larry Price is Orion Deputy Program Manager at Lockheed Martin in Littleton. He says the spacecraft takes some of its cues from Apollo. It's a similar gumdrop-shaped capsule which parachutes into the ocean upon returning to Earth. They learned a lot on Apollo and did it very well. We studied a number of other shapes, very high-speed aircraft-looking, fighter jet-looking aircraft, but the teardrop seemed to be the best, lightest weight. Well, technology has certainly evolved dramatically since Apollo. I mean, I think of our smartphones being smarter than the components on those first lunar missions. How does technology, what is aboard Orion, impact the weight and versatility of the capsule? Much more versatile. The things that Apollo could do with a very small computer, we would compare them to like a pager rather than even your cell phone, huh. but you can't even make a comparison anymore. The computer input was a nine-digit des- nine input that the astronauts had to key in words using numbers. Just phenomenal what we, what we can do now. And what uh, abilities does the capsule have that, you know, that Apollo just never would have? Well, the capsule basically is entirely autonomous. It can fly itself. We don't need military pilots to be flying the spacecraft. Huh. Now scientists and doctors can be flying this, the vehicle. Larry Price is deputy program manager for the Orion spacecraft at Lockheed Martin in Littleton. We spoke in October. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with perspective from the last man on the moon about why it's important for people to keep exploring space. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News. Hi, I'm Stuart VanderWilt, President of Colorado Public Radio. Everything we are today is a result of community support. You've helped create one of the largest public service institutions in our state, locally owned and committed to producing news that's important to Colorado. This is why your end-of-year gift is so important. When you donate today, you'll fuel ambitious plans to grow this vital service in 2020 and beyond. It's easy to do at CPR.org, and thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Morner. The first manned mission to the moon took place 50 years ago. As 2019 comes to an end, we're looking back and ahead in light of that historic moment. Our next guest helped guide the Apollo 11 mission from Earth as a geologist, then wound up on the moon himself. In fact, he was on the last lunar mission. Harrison Schmidt went on to represent New Mexico in the U.S. Senate, We spoke while he was in Denver to mark the moon landing anniversary. Senator, you once described walking on the moon as being on an infinite, giant trampoline. Well,
2: all 12 of us who have been there basically had the same experience. Our weight was divided by six. My own uh, weight with a spacesuit and a backpack and everything was about 370 pounds, Earth pounds, and that meant that on the moon it was about 61 pounds. So you can understand how... uh, It might have felt like a giant trampoline.
0: Do you miss that feeling once you've had it?
2: Oh, I think yes. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Everybody that I know, anyway, that's been there would like to be back.
0: It is an exclusive club, no doubt. When you are one of the few people to have walked on the moon, do you spend the rest of your life bragging about it?
2: Oh, I don't think we brag about it. We talk about it all the time because people are interested. They've been interested for 50 years, and they almost certainly will be interested for another 50 years at least. But by that time, we'll have people living on the moon, I think, and uh, having the same experience that we had, or probably an even better experience, as they prepare to go to Mars.
0: Ah, I'm glad you mentioned that, because President Trump has announced a program to get Americans back to the moon by 2024, and the thinking is indeed that it might be a very good way to practice for the much longer journey to Mars. Is that a plan that you embrace?
2: Well, it's not only a very good way, it's critical. Uh, The Moon is really in the critical path to get to Mars. Mars is going to be very difficult. It's going to require space-based resources uh, in order to reduce the launch mass from Earth by a lot, and therefore the cost. And uh, the Moon has the resources that one would need, uh, what we call consumable resources, water, oxygen, and for fuel, hydrogen, and potentially even rocket fuel, for uh, shortening that trip to Mars.
0: When you say space-based resources, I'll do a little bit of a translation there. The idea is you can't uh, blast off from Earth with all the fuel that you'd need to get to Mars. So you've got to be able to produce that sort of on your way there or create gas stations. And uh, that's what you think could happen here. Let's go back 50 years. You were in the astronaut corps when Apollo 11 landed. Where were you? And uh, would you have us a picture of the moment the lunar module set down. Give us a sense of what was going through your mind and your heart.
2: Well, I was very deeply involved in the Apollo 11 mission. I was the designated mission scientist. I was helping to train the crew for their uh, lunar activities. And so I was in mission control when Neil took that first step. It was clear that 400,000 Americans had met the challenge that John Kennedy laid out for them. And I think all that 400,000 plus Americans, young Americans, most of them younger than 30, felt that they had done something really remarkable.
0: That number, 400,000, help us understand what that number is.
2: Well, about 50,000 of them were in NASA, government employees, but all the rest were contractor employees, Boeing, uh, General Motors, Chrysler.
0: Yeah, I'm fascinated that... uh that you you look at the 400,000 people who helped get us to the moon. I think that's such great well, pres- they, they, perspective. hey, they
2: not only helped, they made it happen. They made it happen. They were the true heroes of the space program. The astronauts were merely the tip of the spear.
0: So you mentioned your science background, a geologist. It was your job in part to prepare those first uh, moonwalkers for collection of what was on the moon, uh, the dust and the rocks and... Gosh, I have to think with as much money and energy as spent on a single mission, the desire might be to bring back everything you can. How did you help the crew understand what to bring back?
2: Well, the primary constraint was time. Dick Gordon told me when we were backup crew for Apollo 15, time is always going to be relentless when you're in space, and it surely is. But Neil uh, was a great observer, very, very bright young man at the time. He was able to uh, collect a, a really a fantastic suite of rocks. And then at the last, sort of at the last minute, while he was outside the spacecraft, he filled that proverbial rock box full of lunar dirt, of lunar soil. And that sample of soil is really one of the most important ever brought back from the moon, included within the 850 pounds that the rest of the missions brought back, because that sample of lunar soil is tells us what the resources are uh, that we can use and settlers of the moon can use in the future.
0: Uh, Forgive me if this is a naive question, but did Neil Armstrong have a shovel or what?
2: He basically uh, picked up the rocks by hand. Uh, That was not difficult. He had a spring-loaded attachment that he could use to to that without having to get down on his hands and knees. And then he did have a scoop in order to get the soil into the rock box.
0: How confident were you during the Apollo 11 mission that you, too, would be on the moon?
2: At that time, I had not been assigned to be on a backup crew. I was soon after that, early in 1970, I was assigned to the backup crew of Apollo 15. Once you're in a backup crew position, then you're pretty much, unless you do something that you shouldn't do... (laughs) you are pretty much in line to fly a mission. Now, the mission I, uh, Dick Gordon, Vance Brand, and I were in line to fly was Apollo 18. Yeah. And in the middle of the Apollo 15 training, it, we were, it was announced publicly that the Apollo 18 mission was canceled. And so then it became our job to try to be so good that we could be assigned to Apollo 17. Wow. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I was the only one that ended up being assigned to Apollo 17, primarily because NASA headquarters and the National Academy of Sciences felt we ought to have a scientist, and specifically a geologist, on that last mission to the moon.
0: My goodness, so you were something of an overachiever, Senator, and otherwise you would not have gone to the moon because 18 was canceled, 17 was the last time. You were one of the last people on the moon.
2: I was the last to step on the moon. If Neil Armstrong was number one, I was number twelve.
0: How often do you dream about that? Does it come back to you when you're asleep?
2: It doesn't. I, don't, I can't recall ever dreaming about being in space or being on the moon, but it's probably because I talk about it so much. Here I'm talking to you, <laughs> and, I, and uh, that probably takes care of any need to dream about it.
0: What's a question you aren't asked enough
2: well, that's, that's an interesting uh, perspective for a questioner. I think uh, the main thing that people should ask more about is why it's so important for the human species, if you will, to be space fairy. Uh, I think it goes back to our heritage, evolutionary heritage, because it's always been important for uh, human beings to expand their access to resources, to expand their access to living uh, conditions, to improve those living conditions. And for two million years, we've been doing that. And so uh, the people who did it well were the ones that survived. And uh, so evolution, I think, had a major part in this interest that the species has to go into space.
0: Okay. Do the math here with me. Do you remember how old John Glenn was when he went, also a senator, by the way, uh, when he went back into space?
2: Well, if I remember correctly, he was about 70.
0: Seventy. Okay. And uh, if you don't mind my asking, Senator, how old are you?
2: I uh, just turned 84.
0: Eight? My goodness. Okay. Would you go back if you could? or is... I, I, That's what I say. <laughs> <laughs> would you go back if you could, or is that just, uh, is that not possible physiologically?
2: I think it's probably, uh, uh, would just be a dream. Uh, there are so many really brilliant young people in the astronaut corps today and, and who will be in the astronaut corps in the future that uh, we won't have any problem finding highly qualified folks to go on, uh, not only back to the moon and explore there and prepare to go to Mars, but actually to go to Mars. I would hate to be competing with these young people today to try to get a seat on a flight to the
0: moon. Senator, thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Harrison Schmidt was on the last moon mission. The first one took place 50 years ago in July. 50 years ago, Americans walked on the moon. Now the Trump administration wants a sequel. Here's Vice President Mike Pence. At the direction of the President of the
5: United States, it is the stated policy of this administration and the United States of America to return American astronauts to the moon within the next five years.
0: Our next guest, CU astrophysicist Jack Burns, is helping guide the project. Burns is often in Washington these days working with the White House, NASA, and private companies on this lunar plan. Jack, welcome back to the program.
3: Well, thanks, Ryan. It's great to be back with you today.
0: Why this urgency to return to the moon?
3: Well, I think that the administration saw that NASA and our space program really had been languishing over the last decade or so. We really weren't going anywhere. We were um, the shuttle program had ended. um and there was really a certain lack of direction. So um, I believe the, that the White House, the Space Council, all believe that a, a bold goal to return to the moon in uh, only five years would get the engine of space exploration started again.
0: Is it space exploration for space exploration's sake? What What's the larger motivation other than energizing an agency? You know what I mean?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and it is beyond that because um, – It's very different today than it was uh, back in the 60s and 70s where we were talking about an all-government program. Today, we have a combination of partners. We have companies like SpaceX, like Lockheed Martin here in Colorado who are intimate partners and uh, expending some of their own resources on uh, return to the moon as well as uh, orbital missions. And then there's international partners as well that have been very successful in working with the the space station. So it's exploration in the sense of also getting a space economy – Uh, underway. And it's exploration, too, of science in understanding our origins uh, by looking at the moon as a kind of history book of where we came from.
0: Why the moon and not, if you want to be bold, Mars? Much farther away, of course.
3: Well, Ryan, it's really both. I think one of the things that's important is to recognize that we're on a sustainable path, which is very different than Apollo, which uh, ended in 1972 after the political goals of beating the old Soviet Union to the moon really ended. Today, what we're looking at is using the moon as a stepping stone to Mars – Uh, The moon is nearby. It's a lot easier to get to. We have the technology to do it. Mars is a lot harder to do. It's a lot further away. It takes um, additional technology. So um, having this uh, two-step process of the moon uh, to uh, get our space legs back again, if you will, uh, because it's been almost 50 years since we've been on another planetary body, and then a, a bolder plan to um, get to Mars towards the middle of the century is, uh, is one that's going to, to lead to a sustainable a space program, I believe.
0: There's a touch of poetry here because the lunar mission is called Artemis. Can we explain that just briefly?
3: Yes, uh, it's a great name, I think. Artemis is the twin sister of Apollo in Greek mythology. So it's a very appropriate name for this new uh, mission to the moon.
0: Ah, given the history of the Apollo missions. Okay, what is it that the, the moon helps us refine uh, that uh, eventually gets us to Mars. What can we learn and what can we achieve perhaps on the moon that makes that journey easier?
3: Well, one of the new things that we've learned in the last decade or so that's different than the end of Apollo is that the moon has water. It has water at its poles uh, and a substantial amount in permanently shadowed craters. In that sense, it's more like Mars. And learning how to mine water from the moon and, for example, turn it into rocket fuel uh, is an invaluable uh, resource in space because we don't have to drag all of that very heavy, very expensive rocket fuel from the Earth. Uh, when we go to Mars, we're going to have to, on day one, learn how to live off the land, including mining water on Mars and also turning it into rocket fuel for a, a return mission. So that's just one of the ways in which uh, the moon is going to facilitate our ability to be able to live and work on, uh, sustainably on Mars. In other words, you would build a rocket fuel plant of some kind on the moon.
0: I mean, water is water's great, but water is not jet fuel. You know.
3: Well, that's right, but it but it really is uh, because water is hydrogen and oxygen. And rocket fuel is also hydrogen and oxygen. Mm. So you break up the water into its components. You have to do a lot of additional chemical processing. It's not a trivial process. Recombine, and you've got liquid oxygen, liquid hydrogen, cryogenically cooled that will serve as the kind of rocket fuel not only to get you back off the moon, but also you can envision having cryogenic uh, fuel depots in space that can be used uh, by future missions to Mars or elsewhere in the solar system.
0: How sophisticated do you think this is, I don't know if the word is colony or base, uh, how sophisticated do you think that presence would be on the
3: moon? Well, I think that the, the, the president's plan called for um, a quick return of humans to the moon in 2024, right. leading to a permanent presence at an outpost in uh, 2028. That outpost I see is very similar to uh, the Antarctic Station that is run by the National Science Foundation. That is, uh, you have scientists, engineers, explorers who uh, come for trips to the Antarctic uh, for science expeditions. In some cases, they uh, stay over the long night in the Antarctic for six months. The same thing is probably going to be true on the moon with the outposts uh, hosting scientists to come for anything from a few weeks stay to maybe a year stay.
0: Help us contrast the journey to the moon versus the journey to Mars. I said, of course, that the journey to Mars is much longer. But help us understand the the difficulties and the differences.
3: Indeed, indeed, it is uh, it is uh, different. It is uh, much more feasible, much easier to uh, get to the moon. It's only three days away. Uh, for one thing. So it's a short trip. If there's a problem underway, then returning astronauts from the moon to the earth is uh, is much more feasible. Yeah. Uh, furthermore, the uh, gravity on the moon is only one-sixth that of the earth, and uh, it's about half that of Mars. So it allows retro-propulsion landing on uh, the moon with technology that we already have. So contrast that now to Mars. Mars takes about eight or nine months using current liquid propulsion systems, liquid rocket fuel systems, to get to Mars. And then because of the alignment of Mars and the Earth, you really have to stay on Mars for a year uh, and then nine months back. So when you go to Mars, you're there for a a a two-and-a-half-year expedition. Furthermore, when you get to Mars, uh, Mars is very difficult to land on. The U.S. is the only country to successfully land any spacecraft on Mars still today. Hmm. Um, you have to go through an atmosphere. Uh, it's the worst of both worlds. The atmosphere is, is uh, dense enough that it requires a heat shield, but it's not dense enough for parachutes to work like they do on the Earth to slow the rockets down. So what you have to do is you have to have what is called a supersonic retro propulsion. That is, you have to fire up rockets while you're still going faster than the speed of sound Mm -hmm. to uh, be able to land on Mars. Frankly, we don't have that technology in place yet today.
0: Jack, American presidents have set lofty goals for space before President George W. Bush actually planned to be on the moon by 2015. That's three years ago now. uh, And he wanted to push past that.
2: With the experience and knowledge gained on the moon, we will then be ready to take the next steps of space exploration, human missions to Mars and to
5: worlds beyond.
0: Now, Bush's successor, Barack Obama, had a different idea.
5: We've set a goal uh, to let's ultimately get to Mars. Uh, A good pit stop is an asteroid.
0: What makes you think President Trump's got a chance of getting this done?
3: Well, Ryan, I think what's different this time than either uh, of the Bush's plans, so uh, George H.W. Bush also had a plan in the early 90s, um, is the price tag. Uh, Those previous missions were all governmental programs using um, governmental rockets that uh, frankly required a hundred plus billion dollars more. Today, we have the technology in place and we have the partnership Mm. with companies in other countries that allows us to be able to do a return to the moon with a public-private academic partnership that uh, has this kind of collaboration that would keep the cost down. So among other things, it's affordable. But also, the moon is hot right now. That is, internationally, we have individual companies as well as other countries that have set the moon as a target. So we're going to be doing this in partnership with others.
0: I want to ask you the perennial question around space exploration. Why spend money on this when it could be funneled into climate change mitigation or you know, homelessness or peace negotiations back on Earth?
3: Well, it's a great question. and It's one that's been asked since the Apollo program, and the answer is we should be able to do both. A great country like the United States with the economic resources and especially the booming economy that we have today is one that should be able to think uh, boldly about exploration. Exploration has always been part of our DNA as a human civilization, Um, and doing this to understand not just the moon, but really understand our own origins, to be able to, um, as I do, use the moon also as a base to look beyond at the distant universe, is something that um, we should, as a human species, uh, be able to do. That, coupled with the fact that, the again, the price tag is modest, NASA's total budget uh, is only four-tenths of 1% of the federal budget. So it's not like it's eating up a lot of, um, of resources right now.
0: Jack, thanks for being with us.
3: You bet. Glad to do it, Ryan.
0: Jack Burns is an astrophysicist at CU Boulder. He served on President Trump's Transition Committee for the space program and now helps guide the administration's plan for lunar missions. We spoke in May. Finally today, a curiosity. This year, we learned that the oldest known chunk of Earth was actually brought here from the Moon. It happened during the Apollo 14 mission. CU astronomer Doug Duncan explains how that can be.
5: Well, believe it or not, rocks are being tossed around the solar system, a lot more than most people would realize. And, and when a meteorite hits, it blasts rocks, if it's big enough, blasts them every which way. And we actually have more than 300 pieces of the moon that came here not from the astronauts, but came here due to meteorites. So it certainly can go the other way. Ah. And uh, this rock is about 4 billion years old. So back in those days, um, the moon was much closer to the Earth. Um, it's moving away slowly, a couple of inches a year. We should talk about those sometime because it's fascinating. But So the moon was closer, and we know that meteorites can blast rocks into space. The And, and so uh, the idea that Earth rocks would be on the moon, that part is certainly true.
0: So it, it's just fascinating to me that the Earth and the moon were so much closer together those many, many years ago, three times closer. So the moon might have looked... Uh, awfully big in the sky back then, but you have the Apollo missions. Awesome, yes. Yeah, you you have the Apollo missions bringing back, gosh, I think more than 800 pounds of of moon rocks. Uh, Maybe we could just establish why they were doing that first before we talk about the particular rock that only recently has been found to actually be some of Earth.
5: Sure. We love to have the moon rocks because everybody's curious about how the Earth and the Moon formed. I mean, aren't you? A- any curious person looks around and I think says, where did the Earth come from? Where did the Moon come from? And, and that's tied up together. And, and so you want to try and find rocks as close to the origin as you can. So old rocks are very valuable.
0: Where was this particular rock found that may indeed contain Earth?
5: Well, it was found in an area that seems to be uh, material that was thrown across the surface of the moon by an impact. I mean, as I think most people know, there's lots and lots of craters on the moon. Yeah, And uh, one of the most prominent, especially at full moon, I invite anybody to get a pair of binoculars in their hands. At the next full moon, look at the moon, and you'll see a really bright white crater with streaks or rays coming out from it. And those are rays of material that were thrown out from the impact. And one of the interesting things about this particular moon rock is it seems to be in an area uh, where a lot of material had been thrown out. Although, like I said, there are many places on the moon uh, that have been mixed up and thrown about by these impacts of meteorites.
0: So how are scientists, again, this is the recent part of the discovery, how are they confident that this rock brought back from the moon actually contains Earth?
5: The, the composition is what we study. And fortunately, because we've got those 800 pounds of moon rocks from different places on the moon, although we certainly haven't visited you know all of the moon, you can make comparisons of what the little part of this rock is made of and compare it to the Earth. And that's what the scientists are arguing, is they think the compositional study indicates that it came from the Earth.
0: Doug Duncan teaches astronomy at CU Boulder. He joins us regularly to talk about space science, and we spoke about this curious piece of Earth-Moon history back in January. Well, thanks for accompanying us on this Moon Mission edition of Colorado Matters with executive producer Carl Bielek. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.